I try not to make changes when I've sent the morning hymns out to those that minister them or with us in them, but about an hour or two ago, as I was thinking over, looking over the notes, a couple of stanzas of that hymn just seemed to fit far better than what I had put before as a man that knew the gospel. Turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. We're going to read a brief portion today that begins in verse 8. Romans 15, the 8th verse. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, For this cause I will confess the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all in believing that you may be found in hope of the Holy Ghost. Linda well, reading there in verse 13. We trust again the Lord had his blessing to the public reading of his word. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we come with hearts that rejoice and identify with the testimony of this brother from days gone by. We can hear, we can know, we can rejoice in the words of love that you have communicated to us. We think of that small phrase considering the tomb, the empty tomb. The mighty stone is rolled away. Yonder is his tomb. Yonder is my peace. Grave of all of my woes. And a life that indeed is touched by sorrows. They are all buried. They will be with us forever as we are joined to the risen, ascended Christ. Help us today again with gospel thoughts. We pray in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. I started my notes this morning, or the notes for this morning, with a phrase, it must have been interesting being on the committee assigned to give the chapter and verse decisions to our modern Bibles. And then I started scratching my head and thought, you know, it's been a while since I looked at that and was told that. I got down several volumes, some survey volumes, some dictionaries, uh, 
Couldn't find anything. After Siri quickly pointed me to some articles. Amazing success of a digital age. But the chapter and verse divisions of our modern Bibles are a product of the 14th centuries. One of the early archbishops of Canterbury named Langford was credited or is credited with the current chapter and verse divisions we know in our English Bibles. The Wycliffe Bible having first used them. But I just saw that to say as we know the convenience chapter and verse divisions, we can find things a lot more readily than if they weren't there. Um, obviously, they're not inspired. And when I had originally thought about that phrase, the committee, I thought how interesting it must have been uh, being in many Presbytery discussions and debates over the years. We can talk for three hours about nothing. Imagine how long meetings go on when we actually have something that we need to talk about. But chapter and verse decisions, that would have been interesting indeed. Well, these are overall excellent and helpful and usually very good. There are occasional obvious errors. I mean, notably Isaiah 52, the last three verses, they are part of the servant's song. Behold my servant, begins in the latter part of chapter 52, and then the whole of chapter 53. I point out other. Well, again, I bring you all this up today because. What we've come to today and what we've read, and particularly as we come to the 13th verse of Romans 15, many commentators suggest that at this verse we really reach the end of Paul's argument. So this is kind of the conclusion of Romans. Well, I tend to agree. Remembering again that these chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. Commentaries have the advantage of, well, a single mind behind them, suggesting their own thoughts and outlines, and I guess then preachers wrestle with their thoughts and outlines following on. But as we come to this point in Romans, as we'll see here in a moment, there is a conclusion, there is an end to Paul's main epistle. If you could think with me in a very, very general way, how Romans is structured, and Romans and Ephesians are two epistles that really exemplify a clear shift from a doctrinal section to a practical section. Again, we've always caveat underneath all of that that there's a lot of practical stuff in the theological sections, and there's a lot of theology that shows up in the practical sections, but these general divisions, well, when we come to Romans, we might add to that the doctrinal the practical, and then the personal. And really from chapter 15, verse 14 to the end of the book, Paul transitioned into more personal. He talks about his own calling and ministry. He talks about his travel plans. He'll get into a significant list of names of people in Rome, names toward the end of his helpers and companions, all of these personal things with some practical and Doctrinal stuff even mingled in there. But he comes down, I say, to really the end of the main stuff that he's written to the Romans about. And as we're coming to the end then of this second section, the practical section, let's review just a little bit, beginning chapter 12, where there's so clearly a transition. 
we found there that Paul begins to structure his practical advice, his practical teaching. First, those classic two verses dealing with our relationship to God. Those classic texts about sanctification, about growth in grace, about being His servants, our relationship to God. Then we found a section dealing with our relationship to other Christians. Then he transitions into our relationship to non-believers. How those interact transpire. Then we found a section dealing with our relationship to the government. All those interesting thoughts for us 21st century Americans to work through. And then another section dealing with people in general. That debt we owe to all. And then from verse 14 or chapter 14 to chapter 15 verse 7, the section we dealt with last time we looked here in Romans, he also in this practical section moves those layers of relationship, if you will, to a particular question, a difficult question, that occurs within the church among the Lord's people. How do we deal with matters of indifference ourselves? And I think it's interesting, and we suggested how we outline this, and not all the commentators agree. Chapter 14, verse 1 again with me. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Then go down to chapter 15, verse 7. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also hath received us. Glory of God. I think those bookends, uh, relatively to my thinking at least, are pretty clear in this section about matters indifferent. We're not talking about heretical matters, matters of theological importance, but practical matters. He suggested even the parties in view here. Jewish believers and Gentile believers and some of those ceremonial issues. But here, this overall lengthy section about matters indifferent and that overriding theme of receiving one another. Not falling into the perennial dangers of judging and despising, which of course we see everywhere among the Lord's people. But now we come, I suggest, to the close of this second practical section. And suggest here today what we find in these words in prayer. Now, I'm going to give more than a prayer. Actually, the prayer is just verse 13. The close of this section, and I'm suggesting with others the, the close of the argument of Romans. But he gives a summary statement, if you will. And we'll see in a moment that this summary in many ways has a lot of parallels to the opening verses, to the introduction to the epistle itself. So he gives a summary and then a prayer. And so if we gave a title to our thoughts today, I would just entitle it a closing prayer with regard to Paul's epistle to the Romans. I would just want to have our thoughts collected today under these two headings. First, Faithful and merciful God. And secondly, a comforting and assuring gospel. A faithful and merciful God and a comforting and assuring gospel. Now again, these words follow on, well, the whole book of Romans. The most doctrinally significant book in all the Scriptures. 
the most systematic, logical, full statement of gospel truth that we find condensed and collected anywhere else in Holy Scripture. So there's going to be a boatload, if you will, of gospel understanding that the Apostle is going to assume as he comes into this closing summary and closing prayer. But as I said, we firstly come to consider a faithful and merciful God. Read with me again verses 8 and 9. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Here Paul, I say, gives us a summary statement. A statement of a faithful and a merciful God. There are many similarities as we suggested to the introduction. And if I could just suggest here, some of this has to bring us to thought again. When I was much younger, I mean really young, <laughs> uh, I used to kind of scratch my head in the opening of Romans and the, the theme of Romans, where Paul said to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. It seemed that there's some preference almost to the Jews. Are, are Gentile believers an afterthought? Are we of a lesser nature, of a lesser breed than the Jews that are part of God's kingdom? Well, that's obviously not what the Gospel is. It's not what Paul's been teaching in Romans at all. I mean, if anything, Romans we find very, very specifically speaks about one Gospel, one only, the one that was promised before by the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. One that finds Jew and Gentile same body of God's covenanted people. But yet in that introduction to the Jew first, also to the Gentile, and in this summary that comes at the conclusion of the argument, we find Jews singled out and Gentiles added in. So what is it? How do we reckon with this that we find? Well, again, step back and look at the, the big picture stuff. How has God been working in history? Well, we look at creation and the fall. See the covenant of grace instituted when man should have received the penalty of that broken covenant, eternal death and alienation from God. God sovereignly chooses not to immediately consign Adam and the whole of the race in him to eternal loss. He enters in and summarizes it to a covenant of grace. And that just makes something we call history happen. And of course, Christ came and entered into history. He came in our nature to be the second Adam, that second man. And that's the story of the Gospel. But how did this history unfold? Man given that promise of grace, and yet we see an Abel, and we see a Cain. And we see a race more and more, and others that calling on the name of God distinguish themselves from that unbelieving portion of humanity. And of course, the wickedness of man comes to so permeate the earth that God in judgment sends a flood and destroys a well-populated earth save eight souls in honoring His promise. And then what happens? 
that race preserved graciously corrupts itself again. But God has promised not to destroy the earth again by a flood. So instead of sending a summary judgment, He divides the nations. He divides the earth into the nations. And they go their own way. They go their own way corrupting themselves. Even see God's sovereign record book, if you will, as He speaks to Abraham of the 400 years that His new descendants, that new nation He's going to form, will spend in captivity in Egypt. He speaks about those inhabitants of Canaan. That portion of the divided earth. And says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. It was filling. He would send a judgment upon some of them early. Sodom and Gomorrah. Perhaps the apostasy is deeply entrenched in Mesopotamia from which Abraham was called because well, we see the first two following patriarchs obtained their wives from there rather than from Canaan or among the Amorites. But God, instead of sending another judgment, calls Abraham. He begins forming a people to be in the midst of the nations. To be a testimony of the Gospel. And into that people, in the Old Testament, we find that Gentiles were not to be excluded. A believing Gentile could be numbered among that people. You find even in the institution of circumcision, the sign and seal of that Old Testament manifestation of the covenant of grace. Gentiles would be included in that as well. But of course, as we see Israel's apostasy increasing, the inclusion of Gentiles, this all to work through then again those thoughts to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Now in, can we say, a gracious chastening of Israel, a provoking of Israel to jealousy, he's now working not with a smaller measure of Gentiles being brought into Old Testament Israel. He's dealing with a remarkable number of Gentiles in the New Testament manifestation of the church and the people of God to provoke Israel to jealousy. And so Gentiles, if we go back to our text and consider how Paul phrases this, I say we find in this summary at the conclusion a faithful and a merciful God. Faithful he mentions with particular reference to the promises made to the circumcision, to the Jews, to the fathers. All of those ever increasingly specific depictions and predictions of the coming of Christ. He's honored in the coming of Christ. He's faithful to those promises. And when he comes to consider the Gentiles who are also recipients of that Gospel, beneficiaries of those promises, well, the summary thought with regard to them, with regard to us, is mercy. And isn't that how we started this practical section, chapter 12, 1 and 2? I beseech you therefore, mercies of God. Again, there are a lot of gospel terms, a lot of specific words that talk about specific parts of the outworking of our redemption. 
But a great summary term, and we speak a lot of grace, and I'm all for that. We kind of named the church that. But a great summary term is mercy. Because when we have that mindset, I'm a recipient of mercy. Grace, we can again very generally say, is He gives us what we don't deserve. He freely grants us what we haven't earned. But in mercy, He's withheld from us what we really do deserve. And what a life-changing, overriding, fundamental thought to have every day. He's not dealt with me according to my iniquities. He dealt with Jesus according to my iniquities. He's dealt with me according to the obedience of Jesus. And so Paul points us as he draws this to a close to a faithful and merciful God. He beseeches them and even notice the language he uses. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister. There's your word deacon. Servant. What did Christ say of Himself? The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. How many times the church gets it backwards. All this focus on our serving Him. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve you. Here, Christ, the minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. There's your faithful God. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. There is your merciful God. And then Paul, as he's wont to do, and here's perhaps one of the most significant moments where he just starts firing out the bullet points. A fourfold quotation of Old Testament Scriptures. Most are careful to point out in the commentaries from all three sections of the Old Testament canon. From the writings, the prophets, and the law. Books of Moses. He quotes from Psalm 18, verse 49 at first. And there's an interesting progression here. As it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. This connection of the Gentiles with Jews in that one Gospel, that one people of God. The Old Testament, Paul in the Old Testament, can show better than any other the truthfulness of that testimony. Psalm 18, God's name is to be declared, confessed among the Gentiles. Then he moves to Deuteronomy 32 and verse 43. That song of Moses. The Gentiles are summoned. Verse 10. And again he said, Rejoice ye Gentiles with His people. Gentiles. Those nations cut off. Those God has, can we say, abandoned to themselves. That's, well, the whole of the rest of chapter 1 after the theme. Suppresses truth and unrighteousness. Instead of the flood, He gave them over to that reprobate mind ultimately 
And yet the call was there. Rejoice with His people. When the world is going its own way and God's calling out another special people distinct from this world, come be with them. So Deuteronomy, come. Summon the Gentiles to join in this praise. Then Psalm 117, verse 1, verse 11 again. Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles. Laud Him, all ye people. Here's a call for the Gentiles, even independently, to praise and to glorify God. And then he comes to his fourth and final quotation, Isaiah 11, verse 10. He says here, and again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. This reign, contrary to what Saul of Tarsus and the unbelieving Jews were wanting out of their Messiah and would have nothing to do with Jesus, this reign over the Gentiles is not some cruel military victory to finally get the Romans out of Palestine. It's a reign of gospel truth. It's a reign of a benevolent sovereign over a redeemed and believing and happy people. And so here, this hope the Gentiles possess. And notice again that giant Old Testament theme, the root of Jesse, the branch. That which was thought to be dead. I mean, what did being of the house and lineage of David mean for Joseph from Nazareth? He was a poor man. There was no kingdom hope in anybody's eyes when they met and talked to Joseph. And what of this son of Joseph and Mary? Now here, here is one worthy. Here is one bringing a very different salvation. A very different reign than the unbelieving Jews had wanted. Paul, I say, brings a summary here of a faithful and merciful God. But we come secondly today to consider also a comforting and assuring Gospel. And this is in the prayer of verse 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Here I say Paul moves from to prayer. A prayer the Romans to experience the fullness of experience. Notice that he prays. We'll come back to the title he uses, the God of hope. But notice he prays that they might be filled with joy and peace. Joy and peace. These friends are the product of the Gospel. These do not belong to those that are outside of Christ. Any joy that the unbeliever thinks that he possesses is but a temporary fleeting thing and it's usually more aptly described as pleasure rather than joy. 
because the Scriptures speak of the pleasures of sin for a season. Scripture mindfully recognizes that very low, temporal, temporary, earthly expression of pleasure. But it falls, could we say, even infinitely short of joy. Peace. There is peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Refrain of Isaiah's second section. It is the false prophet actually who says peace. Peace. When there isn't any peace. There come a time in this world's future when those as we considered in Thessalonians today who are deluded will cry peace and safety. And then sudden destruction comes upon them. Now joy and peace are products of the Gospel. The world cannot obtain or enjoy them. Think of the whole argument of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, who possessed the things he discusses in that book in abundance. And he says, outside of Christ, all these things are vanity and vexation of spirit. It's chasing after the wind. The psalmist even speaks of his rejoicing, of gladness he experienced in his heart. More than the time in which their corn and their wine are increased. The fullness of earthly things. There will be a season of happiness for the worldlings. But the people of God have something more than that. So Paul prays in that deepest sense for these Gospel-receiving, Gospel-believing Romans to be filled with joy and peace. And actually, how he phrases it brings us to consider as well not merely joy and peace in themselves, but as he prays, he says, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. The very prayer that they might increase in their enjoyment of these. That they might be filled. That they might have an overflowing of joy and peace. Speaks to us of the fact of the reality that we can have joy and peace in varying degrees in our Christian experience. That's why I wanted to come and sing Bonner's hymn today. My love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows. But peace with Thee remains the same. No change my Savior knows. Amen. Our joy and peace do ebb and flow. Paul knew that by experience. He knew that was true for Romans. And so his prayer. You think of this. This highly concentrated theological book. His closing prayer for them is that they might be filled 
with joy and peace. There'd be an overflowing of their experience of these things that can belong only to the redeemed. And so let us, with Bonner, confess. It can be a mark of maturity to be willing to confess that you struggle. That your love is oftentimes low. That your joy ebbs and flows. We're not like a charismatic that paints a smile on every day. Whether there's really a smile there or not. We can see those seasons. We can understand and admit them. And we can with Paul pray that when our love and our joy is low, God might come afresh and fill us afresh with them. How can it be? We'll read on prayer. Now the God will fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Faith is going to be at the root of our experience of joy and peace. Faith. All these dealt with in this book. It's from first to last. By faith. That's in his thesis statement. And yet, faith. It's not this ethereal, mystical, we can't define it kind of thing. I don't know if I shared this with you ever before or not, but the only time during my master's work over in Wales that I tried something cute, I'll say, in a paper, uh, was in a paper, a wonderful class on the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, some stunningly deep, deep stuff there. I remember vividly when the lecturer finished these were almost eight-hour day lectures for a week. And when he concluded on the last day, the class was silent. I mean, a long season went by when nobody said anything. And the thought came to me, maybe I was the carnal one and broke the silence. But I thought of the text in Revelation. There was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. Well, in that class, I say the only time I tried to get cued in a paper, I, I put a, a footnote. Because we dealt a little bit with faith itself. Neo-Orthodoxy plagued the 20th century and still with us today. Has the idea that in religion, in Christianity, which we want to be Orthodox, the new Orthodoxy, we can, we can do better than the liberals. But they talk about a leap of faith. You know, the Bible is going to be authoritative when it comes to religious things, but we're going to let it have errors and all the other stuff. And we'll just take a leap of faith. Well, one of the aspects of refutation there, and I don't want to get in any further into those pieces, but faith, what is it? Well, there was a song that was in a musical called Lost Horizon in the 1960s. It's a Burt Bacharach song. And in that class, 
my parents had the album. It was, it was in my head. All I have to do is hit the right button and it plays. Uh, there was a song entitled, Where Knowledge Ends, Faith Begins. Baccarat songs always stick in your head. But that's a lie. Faith isn't what we go to when we run out of truth. When we run out of knowledge. Faith is reckoning upon what God has revealed. Saving faith, gospel faith, is abandoning hope in myself, taking God at His Word, and trusting the redemption that is provided for me in Jesus. That's not a leap into the dark. That's taking God at His Word. Plug that into Paul's prayer. He says, The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Faith is going to be the means whereby we increase in joy and peace. And so it may be true at times in our experience, if our joy and our peace are at a low ebb, that what we need is an increase of knowledge that we can, by faith, reckon upon. Paul's praying for an increase of joy. He hasn't prayed this prayer at the end of a letter full of meaningless emotional fluff. He's prayed this prayer at the end of the epistle to the Romans. The Bible's systematic theology in believing and increasing in faith. You're going to know more joy and more peace. There have been a couple of times in my pastoral experience, church of this size, to your good credit, I haven't had to engage in a lot of really heavy, difficult, painful pastoral work of all the problems that life can bring. But there have been a couple times in engaging with people and sometimes just in my own meditations that I've wanted very seriously to tell somebody that's dealing with a very practical problem, a very practical problem, you know what you need? You need to study the doctrine of limited atonement. Now, I wouldn't just put it that bluntly. I can say it this way to raise an eyebrow. But there's an element of truth in it. I mean, we always think of limited atonement as one of the five points of Calvinism, which is that Christians argue about when they should be loving each other instead. Well, there's some truth in that. But yet, underneath that doctrine of particular redemption, again, remember, you can't discuss the extent of the atonement without discussing the nature of the atonement. And the nature of the atonement is simply the question, what has Christ done for His people? And sometimes, when I'm in the middle of a very practical problem, understanding more about what Christ has done for His people 
is the very help that I need. How am I going to have more joy and peace? Paul's praying that the God of hope will fill us with joy and peace by believing. And faith doesn't begin where knowledge ends. Go with Paul, not Bacharach. We need to know more of the gospel. We need to recognize and merciful God to experience this comforting and assuring gospel. And all of this, as we continue through his prayer, he comes from highlighting faith as the way of increase for joy and peace, that we may abound in hope. And of course, hope is that joyful anticipation of the fullness of what Christ has purchased for His people. And so hope, we've talked about that trio of virtues in Thessalonians, and that patience of hope, that endurance that flows from our expectations of what is still to come in the application of the work of Christ to our souls. And so here, he points us toward hope flowing out of this faith that increases our joy and our peace. And we walk by hope then in the midst of a world that is hopeless. And then how can we attain that? All of this that Paul's prayed for is going to be ours through the power of the Holy Ghost. Spirit of God. And that's why we pray. We pray with a confidence that our Savior said, how much more? You think of a father, a parent, the hungry child. You give them a stone when they come asking for bread. It's almost unthinkable. To those that a little side comment about our charismatic brethren today, let me make another comment. I think sometimes the non-charismatic branch of the church, which I belong to, we get scared of talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't go away because a branch of the church misunderstands the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. Don't let us be shy about asking for the Spirit of God. Christianity is spiritual. It's the fruit of the Spirit that we seek to increase in. Not just some professions and outward lists. I often... My youth was taken back when people would speak about evangelism and sharing the gospel and they would come to their appeal to somebody and you need to ask Jesus into your heart or you need to enter into a personal relationship with God. And think of how shallow such appeals are. I mean, I've heard appeals 
even presented in classes with regard to this type of thing, that a Roman Catholic could sign, could hardly endorse. We have to have some content to the gospel that we ask people to trust in. But again, because a branch of the church or individual Christians call people to a personal relationship with God without any explanation of how that could possibly occur when we're rebels against Him and then explaining the work of Christ, but yet when we understand the work of Christ, when we embrace and affirm the doctrines of the Gospel, we should of all people enjoy personal, spiritual relationship with the God who's redeemed us. Paul, I say, comes that we're not with Romans. There's a lot of paragraphs still to go. But I say, in some ways, he's finished his argument. He's finished the doctrinal. He's finished the physical. Given that summary statement of Jews and Gentiles, God's faithful mercy, prayer, that we might be filled with joy, believing this by the power of the Spirit of God. That was Paul's prayer for the Romans. That's Paul's prayer for us. This is a goal. This is a conclusion of the Gospel for us. Here's a summary and a prayer for the fullness of Christian experience. I trust the Lord will add His blessing to these thoughts today from His Word. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we come and ask as we would each in the privacy of our own hearts confess with Bonner, my love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows. But peace with Thee remains the same. No change my Savior knows. Lord, stir our love and joy with that Gospel knowledge even this day. Do it by Your Spirit within us. We ask in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.